All right, good morning. Time to go back to school this morning. Ain't that a blessing? Okay, maybe not so much. <laughs> All right, let's do uh, what some of my teachers did when I was coming up, and I think it's because they realized I may have not been the sharpest knife in the drawer. And uh, so they would do a thing called a review. And so um, let's just sort of do a quick review for those of you that were asleep during the thing yesterday. Now, there is a test at the end of the... Uh, camp, and uh, if you pass the test, you get to go home, and if you don't, you have to stay another two weeks. So now you're thinking, I think I'd rather flunk, right? <laughs> Isn't it nice to kind of get away and get away from the pressure that having to be on the phone all the time and be on the computer and return all the texts and the emails? Do you ever feel pressure about that? Like somebody hits you and you feel like you got to turn it back right away. Somebody's Bible up here, you might need that. I don't know whose this is. Okay, well, you don't need it, man. You already know it by heart. You're good to go. <laughs> All right, take your Bible, if you will, please, and let's uh, take your Bible. Look in 2 Timothy chapter number 2. Thank you, Brother Joe. Let's pray. Father, we sure thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for the good night's rest. Thank you for the good food. Uh, Lord, uh, help us to be grateful for the things that you're getting done behind the scenes that we're not aware of, taking out the garbage and cleaning stuff up and fixing and repairing stuff and getting sound equipment to work and different things to make things more uh, comfortable for those of us that are here. Thank you for the great weather that we're having. sure appreciate the lack of humidity for those of us from a little further south. We'd ask now, Lord, that you might help us this morning as we try and strive to be better Christians than we currently are. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, and we'll pick it up there in 2 Timothy chapter number 2. Now we're talking about the purging yourself, and this is where we left the excavator running. As Brother Evans told you last night, he made a great description. He obviously knows some things about the, the katsu and, and uh, all those kind of things as far as the... Uh, the um, Equipment is concerned, but remember we pulled the big root out last night. That leaves what's called a cavitation or leaves a hole. It leaves a cavity if you have it in your mouth. It leaves a hole that needs to be filled. I'm not a big advocate of you filling that with the wrong things. I do know this. I know that you're prone to a cave-in. I know that when we were digging pipe and stuff, when I, I say we, I was the one that was setting up the road for them to be able to use their machines. And down there, because of the kind of soil that we have, it has a tendency to cave in. If you get the hole too deep, what will happen to you is, is you can be digging a hole. If you're setting a certain kind of pipe, it has to be so many feet below the roadway, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And so what they have to do is put sheeting in there, and they have to put jacks in between the sheeting. And one day they got out a little bit ahead, and the backhoe began moving down the way, and the hole had to be 48 inches deep and then had to have a compacted bottom. And so they got the guy down there in the bottom with the little hammer thing, and he's hammering along, compacting the bottom, and the DOT, the Department of Transportation's checking the compaction of the soil and that kind of thing. But he got so far ahead of the other machine that was taking these big three-quarter inch steel plates and putting them in on either side, and then they put a jack in between them and jacked those things apart. And they didn't get maybe from here to the, whoever's glasses those are on the floor up there. And so we got, you know, just a few feet ahead. And then all of a sudden, everybody starts hollering. And the next thing you know, the guy that was in the hole, he's gone. He's disappeared. It's only a four-foot hole. It's really not very much at all. 
But what happened is, is the walls of the side of that thing caved in on him and it hit his legs first and it caused his legs to collapse. And the next thing you know, he's down there on his knees and the rest of the sides of the thing caved in on him. Well, we all jump down in there with shovels and we're trying to get him. First thing we want to get out is his head, right? <laughs> so he can breathe again. But what I did not know at that time is the amount of pressure that that sand was putting on him. And when we finally were able to get him dug out, we got rescue there and all that other kind of stuff. And you're thinking, well, it's just a bunch of dirt. that. You realize the pressure of the collapse actually cracked his ribs. And he was having a hard time breathing and he was wheezing and all that. And I thought it's because his airway was, you know, uh, maybe had some uh, sand or some dirt and debris and that kind of thing. And there was an old man there. He's an old tobacco chewing man. He'd been running road work for years and years and years. And he said, well, that's what happens when you get too, too much ahead of yourself. And I thought, you say, what's happening? The guy on the backhoe, all he cared about was is getting the ditch dug out so he could take an early break. But what he didn't realize is, is you need to dig and stop, and you got to set some retaining walls in there, and you got to put some jacks in there to keep it from caving in on you so that you can complete the work that needs to be done. Now, there's a time when you pull the sheeting out, and after you pull the sheeting, there's another thing that we did there. They put in well points. And the reason you put in a well point is, is you sink the well point down below the surface that you have to draw the water out of that because especially if it rains, that groundwater will sit there and it will cause the soil, listen carefully, to be unstable. Now we're talking about digging a foundation, but you have to be more careful than you think. Just digging a foundation, pour a little bit of concrete in it, you're good. But the deeper you go and the more you have to go down there to pull certain things out, the more prone you are to a bad accident occurring because you can dig it out and think, oh, it'll be fine now. You better put some support in there. The reason is, is because sometimes we get some things in our life straightened out at camp, and that's a good thing. And sometimes your preachers deal with you and your pastors deal with you, and you go to the altar and you get the thing fixed, and you, that's a good thing. And sometimes it's big things. Sometimes it's devastating things, things that may even leave permanent scars with you. But then what happens is, is we're in a hurry to just move on to the next step. And the Lord says, you know what, you better put some support in here. You say, why? That thing that you dug out might cave in on you. And the next thing you know, your knees go out from underneath you. And before long, you're covered up. And then you have some real damage that takes place. We put well points in there to dry the soil out. And it would take a long time. I asked him one time why. This is way back years and years ago. I mean, how come it costs so much money to say from here to the dining hall, they're going to charge them hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he said, well, come here and I'll show you. And he said, we've gone now about 15 feet. And he said, that 15 feet right there is about $60,000. This is way back in the day. I said, $60,000 a 15-foot ditch. He said, yeah, but what you don't realize is there's soil testing before we started excavating. And then after the soil testing, it has to be approved. And then guess what? It goes to the engineer, and the engineer tells the type of soil and how many well points you need for however many feet that you're going to be clearing out. And then you have to have a certain material. I said, well, why can't you just use plywood sheeting? He said, plywood will break under pressure. He said, you can only use metal sheeting. You know what they're bringing out? They're bringing the stuff that they make bunker sea tanks out of. These big fuel tanks that you see that hold oil and stuff that they weld together. It's three quarters of an inch thick. It has to be lifted by a crane and a cable and it has to be set in there. And once it's set, that crane has to hold it till the one on the other side is set with a choker cable. And after that's done, they put the jacks in. And then once the jacks are done and those sheets are only 12 feet long. So we've gone about 15 feet and there's two sheets down there on one side and two sheets on the other side and I don't know how many jacks that have to be placed in certain things. Now I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, that's just absolutely ridiculous. 
I can tell you that that guy that I saw get crushed by that sand, I can tell you this. First of all, he was real apprehensive about ever getting back in another ditch. Second of all, you know what he wished? He wished he had not gotten in the ditch without the support. You can't do it by yourself. You get rid of something, you know what you got to do? You got to find a good friend. Jesus is a great friend to have, but you need somebody that will help you to support you so that the thing doesn't cave in on top of you again. What has to happen is, is I have to recognize that I've sent it up to an engineer that knows more about it than I know about it because he knows the difference in weight loads and how many foot-pounds per square inch and all these crazy cal calculations. A guy comes out there and he's uh, skinny as a rail and he's got on a pair of glasses, he looks like a bookworm and he's got a set of blueprints and he's out there looking at the thing and he's telling the guy to pull the tape and he looks at the tape and he does a calculation and then he has him pull the tape and he does a calculation and then he goes over to the, to the foreman, the guy's sitting there with his sleeves rolled up, camel cigarettes rolled up in his sleeves over here, he's got on a pair of jeans he takes that hard hat off and they got a plywood thing set up there between two saw horses and he lays it down and the guy takes out a red felt tip pen and he says you have to have a jack here you have to have a jack here, you have to have a jack here you have to have a jack here, a thing did like this across there and he said, you have to do that to disperse the weight this way. The weight has to go in this direction. It can't come in this direction. And the way that you do that is you displace it by putting the jacks in the right place. If you just put them at the top, the bottom will cave in. If you put them at the bottom, the top will cave in. He said, so this is how you have to place them. Now, some people would say, well, that's ridiculous to tell me how to have to put jacks in. Just put them in wherever you need to. But you're dealing with hundreds of pounds per square inch of pressure. Are you following my illustration? I'm saying that whenever you start the excavation process, there has to be some support for the walls before you pour it. They call it when you pour concrete, you know what they call it? They call it form boards. That's not just to make the concrete look pretty. As a matter of fact, when you pour the concrete, after you pull the form boards out, you can't even tell how straight the edge is. But you know what they don't let you do? They don't let you leave the form boards in there. You say, why? Because the form boards will rot and it compromises the foundation. So even though you've used the form boards, once the concrete's poured, you have to then pull the form boards and then you have to backfill. And in what I used to do when I was following behind them to do all the traffic control, what they had to do was backfill it and then they had to stabilize the soil on the backside of where the pipe was poured. That was concrete encased uh, piping that was done there that was heated and it had insulation on it and it had to have oil on it to keep the electric uh, uh, cables inside of it to keep them uh, cool. Here's the illustration. Whenever you dig out a hole, you got to be quick to get some support sometimes before you get ready to fill it. You got to be able to say, what do I need to do to make sure the thing doesn't fall in on me while I'm trying to fill it with the right stuff? I don't know if you know this or not, but it takes longer to fill it than it does to clear it out sometimes. And so sometimes while you're filling it, you know what can happen? You can get hurt, it can cave in on you. And there, guess what happens? You feel like a failure again. No, it's just because you didn't understand the process means now that I've done an excavation, I've got to have some support. I need some form boards here. What it is that I'm trying to do. Secondly, don't get in a hurry to do this. Salvation's instantaneous. Do you understand that? As soon as you ask the Lord to save you, He saves you like that. But the thing you're in, somebody has already said it is a marathon. You're not running a sprint. It's the thing that takes a long time. Don't get in a hurry. Don't get ahead of yourself. Make sure that you take your time. You say, why? Because sometimes you can outrun your support. It's good to have your support that's around you. You always want to make sure that your backup's in place before you kick the door down. But that's a whole other deal. 
All right, Matthew uh, talked about Matthew chapter number 6, and we talked about the treasure that's there, and we talked about where your heart is or where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. We talked about those things that were there. The first thing that you have to do, we already went over, was to present yourself. I failed to mention to you yesterday, that's a voluntary presentation. Nobody can force you to do it. Nobody can make you do it. Nobody can tell you you have to do it. It has to be, I'm willing. If you get that part right there down pat, you'll be a much ahead of a lot of other people. That's not forced compliance. Isn't it odd to you or does it ever seem strange to you that after the Lord saved you, now he bought you, he paid for you, he owns you, he should be able to control you, but he gives control back to you. Don't you find that weird? I find it strange. If I bought and paid for something, especially like let's say if I bought and paid for a, for a horse and the horse doesn't do what I tell it to do, I'd probably get rid of the horse, Right? Well, the Lord still lets you do whatever you want to do. But the hardest thing that you have to realize is, is nobody can force compliance. And you can't make that happen. I don't care how hard you preach and how much guilt you apply and how much fear you apply. And those are great motivators, but they're short-term motivators. If you're not willing to present yourself like as far as a marriage is concerned, when you're willing to do it because you love each other, you're going to have a hard time making it in marriage. You'll have a hard time making it in the Christian life. You'll always feel like you're being forced to do something. Christianity is not by force. It's voluntary. Now, if some of you would understand that, you would understand better what it is when it comes to working around a church and working around other people. Some of you, I know, get frustrated with people, but you're dealing with all volunteers. They're not being paid for it. And if you expect them to act like paid employees, you're missing the whole point. They're there by voluntary. They're, and guess what? They're a soup sandwich. You ever look at the volunteers the volunteers in the Lord's army? Some of them are just flat stupid, but they're willing. I mean, Herbie, he didn't really, I mean, he, he had a hard time doing anything. But man, you talk about willing, he'd be there to do anything in the world. We had a guy that was a janitor. My dad employed him for years up there. He was a janitor. His name was Mr. Ed. I, not the horse, he was actually a, a man. He had one bad leg that he had lost during a war there and he had a bad arm and he was twisted up and he walked with a limp. That leg was at least a good four inches shorter than the other one and he'd walk along like this and that kind of thing. He grabbed that uh, back in those days. They had these big wheels with these uh, uh, polishing mats on it and he'd put the polished stuff down there on the floor. Those floors would shine like a mirror and he'd grab a hold of that thing and he'd hold that thing with one hand and he'd swing it back and forth like that. I remember coming in there one day, it had a big cord like this thing you got wrapped up here, a big red cord, it had a big black cord on it like that. I remember walking in there one day and I'm watching him and he said, you want to try it? And I said, yeah, I want to try that. And he said, now you got to hold on to it, you know, because it'll get away from you. And I thought, well, you're doing it with one hand, old man. I mean, he was older than dirt. That was back when I was a kid, man. And, and he's over there holding it with one hand. And I thought, you know what, well, I can do this. I was about 10 years old. And you know, at 10 years of age, you think you know everything. You're a pretty smart fellow, you know. And so I grabbed a hold of the thing like this, you know. And he goes, okay, now mash the button. And I remember when I was getting ready to mash the button, I remember him moving out of the way. <laughs> And I mashed the button and I learned real quick. He had a lot more strength in that one arm than I thought. And that thing spun me all over the floor. I didn't have enough sense to turn loose of the handle. You know, it's like the first time you ever learn about skiing. You grab a hold of the ski ropes and you're getting ready to get up. And all of a sudden the skis come off and your legs are dragging behind you. And they're all screaming at you, turn loose of the rope. But the water's in your ears and you're drowning. The water's coming in your mouth. It's coming in your eyes and all that. And they're screaming, turn loose. And it's like they finally turn off the engine and you sink. But you're still holding on to the rope, right? Well, I held on to that thing until the cord and me and the machine were all wrapped up as one. And finally, he went over to the wall and pulled the thing out of the wall. And I finally stopped and I said, I think I've had enough. 
But you know what? When it came to certain things around the church, he knew how to do those things, and very few people wanted to do this kind of stuff that he did, like fixing toilets and fixing faucets and cleaning out closets and sweeping floors and stuff. But if you were to ask him to do administrative stuff, he, he couldn't do administrative stuff. You would have embarrassed him to the uh, day as long if you'd have took him in and asked him to do a secretary's job. You know, the hardest thing to understand is that when uh, people get saved, they want to do something for the Lord. They feel indebted to do something for the Lord. But guess what? They may not have the skills that you have. You see your pastor sometimes show grace toward individuals, and you're thinking to yourself, man, that guy's stupid. He's dumb as a box of rocks. And the pastor's just glad to have a volunteer. When I say volunteer, it's not somebody that steps into the position of the pastor and tries to take over and run the thing. It's just somebody that steps in and says, hey, can I, can I help you? And guess what? You may try it after a while and figure out they're maybe not cut out for that job, but I don't want to ruin them that they want to volunteer. You might want to remember that. Somebody might be serving you food. They've never served food before, but they're trying. And all you talk about is, well, they splattered something on you. Well, you've got, well, you got a washing machine. You can wash it. No big deal, right? Somebody might be cleaning up behind you. They don't know how to do it. Do you understand about volunteers? Volunteers come because they're willing. That's the most important thing. When it comes to serving the Lord Jesus Christ, being willing is the most important thing. The Lord will take care of the deficit. If your method is, your motive is right, your method is a soup sandwich, the Lord will fix the soup sandwich. But always be willing to do that. Do what the Lord will have you to do. Try out the things that you do. Maybe you're not a good singer. I told you yesterday, some of you sound like styrofoam lids. But I appreciate you trying, but let's try something else, like an instrument, you know, or whatever. But, but you know, do you see what I'm saying to you? Find out what it is. Don't give up just because you can't do what you want to do. Find out what you can do. That's what the Lord made a memorial to Mary about. You've all heard that story before. So the important thing I want you to see about point number one here is, is that it's voluntary service. It requires you to spend some time. It requires you to look at things. Don't be so hard on people. Your pastor is always looking for people to help him, and then he finally gets somebody to help, and then invariably somebody will come along and say, well, that person's no good. And he's like, man, shut up. I finally got somebody to help me. It's bad if you happen to be the one that doesn't know how to do anything and somebody's making fun of the little thing you can do. All right, then you got to purge yourself. This is where it kind of gets down to the brass tacks of yesterday. And we got down to the excavation process. It's to remove the contamination, the roots, the grass, the debris, the things that are in there. But what I should have put in here uh, this morning is, is that you have to have support before you backfill. You need to make sure that you get around the right crowd. We're going to talk about that later. We're going to talk about the associations that you have. Uh, associations produce a lot of contamination. If you have the wrong associations, you know what can wind up happening to you? Gravity always takes place. Years ago when we first started preaching over here, I don't know how many years ago it's been now. It's been here a long time. We had 25 or 30 kids, I think, the first time we were here. But however it is, and we're glad that all of you are here now. And I wish the whole place was filled out and people having to camp outside in tents. But I gave you an illustration, and I had a young man come here and weighed maybe 100 pounds soaking wet, and I asked you a question when I grabbed the hold of his hand. I said, now let me ask you something. Is there a better chance of me pulling him up here or him pulling me down there? I outweigh him by more than 100 pounds. Now you answer that question. If I have this little fellow here holding the green flag, flag's bigger than he is, if I have him come up here and he holds on to me, you think he has a better chance of pulling me down or me pulling him up? You tell me. Him pulling me down. But he's littler than I am. I think I could maybe, maybe I might could beat him. I don't know. Let me see that knot there. You got that. Let me see that tater. I, 
Well, I might could beat you in an arm wrestling contest, but, but here's the thing. You say he's got gravity on his side. The thing you've got to be aware of is, is that people sometimes that are wanting to help you and support you, they're not underneath you to try to lift you up. They're underneath you to try to pull you down. You have to separate yourself from people like that. Now, again, you understand separation doesn't produce spirituality. The elevation does. We're going to get to that after a while. But you've got to recognize the associations that you're around, they have a gravitational pull to it. And if you're running with the wrong crowd, I can tell you right now from past experience, not just what I used to do, but my own personal life, you run around those people long enough, you know what will happen? Even in church, they'll wind up pulling you down to their level. You won't pull them up to your level. Don't ever marry somebody that's not saved. That's not just because forsake not the assembly together and so on and so forth and separate from them and so on and so forth in, in uh, 2 Corinthians. That is also, and be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers and that kind of a deal. It has to do with the fact that, you know what will happen? You think, well, if I get him saved and it'll all get fixed. If I could just get married to him, then I'll get him under control. And then 40 years later, you'll realize he hasn't changed at all. And you're going to spend your whole life trying to get him saved. He needs to be saved before he even talks to you. How many of you girls are saved? You know you're saved. All right? You shouldn't be looking for anybody but a saved man. I don't, I don't care how good he looks. I don't care how wonderful he is. I don't care what kind of job he has. None of that stuff matters. You say, why? If you don't have the most important thing, that spiritual life in common, you're headed for a train wreck. Every time. You say, but I really like him, and he's, everybody knows him in school, and he's really pretty to look at. He's great eye candy and this and that and the other, and all the other girls want him, and they can't have him because I got him. And the Lord said, I don't want him. But Lord, if I can get him, I, he'll, he'll get saved for me. Well, then he got saved for the wrong reasons. Come on, girls, look at me now. I know I'm not much to look at, but y'all are kind of looking down now. You're running with the wrong crowd. You see, because you start liking them. They rub off on you, don't they? And they're nice. And, and they talk nice, and they treat you nice. And the next thing you know, you get involved with them, and before long, he's got your heart. And then guess what happens? Well, I'll change. And then the next thing you know, you'll wind up with them and you'll be headed to their church. The church of the charismatic hoopla and the foolishness. And before long, you'll be Ostelashantai, Untai, Nabotai, Economy Honda. If he won't come with you to your church, you better kick him to the curb like a bad habit. You say, why? Why would you let him take you out of your church? Well, preacher, I'm married now. I'm, I'm married, so I have to follow my husband. I'm free of following your husband, but you better pause a minute and think to yourself, if he ain't even going to church, and you're going to let him take you out of your church, you tell me what's wrong with that picture. Well, he's saved. Well, if he is, he's out of fellowship. All right, so here's the thing you got to recognize. you got to purge yourself. And when I say purge yourself, sometimes you have to purge yourself of associations or individuals that are with you that are not good for you in the spiritual sense. You have to learn where to draw the line. You have to learn that there are bad influences. Now, if you're already married, you can't kick them to the curb because they're a bad influence. you got to pray. That Bible teaches you as men, you're to dwell with a woman according to knowledge. That means that what you have to do is learn what makes her tick and hope you do well with that and learn why she is what she is and be able to try to come up with something to be able to help her out of the situation that she's in. She becomes an object of continual study. You say, why? She changes all the time. Thank you for laughing, ma'am. I appreciate that. I'll be glad to buy you lunch today. <laughs> you say, why does he say dwell with a woman according to knowledge? You never understand them. But he don't say that about you. 
You say, why? You're pretty much set in your ways. You pretty much, the way you are now, you'll be this way from now on. Maybe you'll learn some character early on in life, but you know what? You're pretty much routine animals. That's why it's bad that some of you, all you do is sit on your fat behind and play video games and mess your mind up with a fantasy world. That ain't real life. And you have to learn to purge yourself. You say, why? Well, do you want to be spiritual or not? Well, there's a cost associated with it. No pain, no gain. It's going to cost you something. You've got to jettison some things. You've got to get rid of some things. The ship's sinking. You've got to throw the tackling overboard. You hear me? You've got to get rid of some stuff. But you've got to make the decision. It's voluntary. Nobody can force you into that. And if you do it just because everybody else is doing it, eventually, you know what will happen? You'll wind up gravitating back to it. I'm not trying to be hard on you. I'm saying you're formulating your life right now. Your parents, your pastors, your teachers, the people that care about you, cared enough about you to send you to youth camp, hoping that something would happen in your life that would redirect, change, or formulate a, 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 a method for you to be able to be successful in life. This is like going to a boot camp. I've often thought about doing it from that particular standpoint, not for all the physical stuff, but to understand some of you haven't had the benefit of a good dad. Some of you don't have the benefit of a good mom. Some of you haven't had teachers that were any good. You haven't had a mentor or somebody to help you. I could tell yesterday, I'm having to ignore the girls yesterday when I talk about going to the gym. The girls are over there, yeah, I go to the gym. You guys are like, uh, gym. <laughs> How do you spell that, gym? Is that a... J-I-M, I don't go to gym for nothing. You, nah. And they're talking about working out a little bit, but y'all are kind of a little slow on the draw. And they're like, you know, you go over there and you get the card and you learn the routine. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know that. You're like, and y'all are like, uh, routine. <laughs> what is a routine? Right? Not all of you, but some of you. You say, well, what are we doing here? You're trying to learn some good habits. Habits are good things to have. They're easy to get into and hard to get out of if they're bad habits. All right, so that has to do with purging yourself. You have to eradicate some things, eliminate some things. You got to do the excavation. That's where we left the machine running, the cat zoo or whatever it was, and however many foot pounds. It's a diesel machine, so it's running. It can run all night and it won't hurt at all. All right, here comes the hard part. I know I was in 2 Timothy, but I want you to go ahead and come to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. This is a tough one right here. You say, what? You have to allow or you have to permit, since I'm using peas, you have to permit suffering. And most people don't like that. But I'm going to show you a precedent here in the Bible. I'm going to show you that that's part of the Christian life. 1 Peter chapter number 5. Now bear with me. I know you're sleepy. I know you're tired. I'll only be about 30 more minutes. And then we'll go eat a hamburger or a hot dog or whatever they got up there for us to eat. And uh, look if you will. 1 Peter chapter number 5. Come all the way down please if you would. Uh, verse number 8. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion. Walketh about. Seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have <sighs> suffered. Yeah, that's what he said. I realize that sometimes Christian people don't understand that suffering is a part of the Christian life. As a matter of fact, it is the reason why you get rewards in eternity. Come to Philippians chapter number 1. Philippians chapter number 1. Let me just show you this. You may want to write some of these things down. Philippians chapter number 1. Now the verses are up here. If you don't want to write them down now, you can write them down later. But I think it's important for you to grab a hold of them. 
Verse 28, nothing terrifying by your adversaries, which to them is an evident token of perdition, but to you is of salvation. So you have adversaries in the Christian life. For unto you it is given on the behalf of Christ, verse 29, not only to believe on him, there's your salvation, but to do what? Suffer for whose sake? That means if you stand with Jesus Christ, you're going to get the same trouble that he got. He said what? Paul says, having the same conflict which you saw in me. Well, what kind of conflict did Paul have? We'll come, if you will, over to 2 Corinthians 11. I'll show you a couple of things that Paul had. You say, well, I want to be a minister. I want to be a pastor. I want to be a, I want to be a preacher. Okay, good. That's a great thing. The desire of the office of a bishop, you desire a good thing. But there's some things that come with that. If the Lord's going to use you to minister to other people, he's going to put you through pain and pressure. You say, what does that do? That's where the power comes from. I think 2 Corinthians is the New Testament. My pages are stuck together here. There it is. 2 Corinthians chapter number 11. Look, if you will, please, in verse 23. Now, we're going to read the passage because it's important for you to see this. Here's Paul, and he's talking about these people that are saying that they're, uh, they're great ministers. Verse 22, um, he's, or 21. I speak concerning reproach as though we had been weak. Howbeit, whensoever uh, any is bold, I speak foolishly, I'm bold also. Are they Hebrews? Yeah, me too, so am I. Are they Israelites? Yeah, so am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. I'm more of a minister of Christ, Paul said. Yeah, I'm more of a minister of Christ than they are. Okay, Paul, how are you going to show me that? In labors more abundant, there's always work to do. And don't expect to get appreciation for it. You're not doing it for others. You're doing it for him. Yeah. Ladies, you have to learn that even in marriage. I hate to keep bringing that up, but some of you are in such a hurry to get married, you don't realize what you're getting yourself into. But a lot of times what you don't recognize is you still have responsibilities as a wife even if you're married to an ogre. You say, why? The Lord doesn't take the pressure off of you and say, well, if he treats you this way, then you can treat him that way. That's manipulation. The Lord says, do you love me? Good. Then you do what I tell you to do and you let me take care of him. You don't want to get in the position or get in the way of the Lord, do you? I didn't mean to put a damper on the meeting. But boys, you better be careful. If you're not doing what God has you to do, he'll take a stick to you. You say, why? You're not treating the weaker vessel like you're supposed to treat her. That takes real leadership. That don't mean you can beat her into submission. This foolishness going around about uh, uh, Bible believers have a right to paddle your wife. Well, I hope they hang you up by your stinking toes and paddle you. You ought to be bent, beat like a rented mule. Yeah, I mean, I mean that. I mean, if you don't like it, go see Evans. He'll take care of you. Notice what he says. He said, I speak as a fool, I am more. I labor as more abundant. In stripes above measure. You mean you're getting punished for preaching, Paul? Yeah. In prisons more frequent. Why, Paul? Were you a thief? Were you a robber? Were you a murderer? Were you a rapist? What did you do? Commit larceny? What did you do? Did you run a red light? Did you get a DUI or something? No, for preaching. He goes to prison for preaching. In deaths often, that means he's running to his life on a multitude of times where he thought he was going to lose his life. Now watch. 
verse 24, here's the ministry. We're talking about pain. We're talking about suffering. Paul is your apostle that you follow like he followed Christ. Of the Jews, five times I received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once stoned, suffered shipwreck, night and day in the deep. Journeyings often, perils of water, perils of the robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils of the heathen, perils of the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils of the false brethren, weariness and painfulness, and watchings often, hunger, thirst, fastings often, cold, nakedness. Besides those things which are without, the things that cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. <laughs> Good night alive, Paul, am I aching back? That's the ministry? Paul said that's the ministry. That's what ought to be given to every one of you that says, I want to surrender to God to preach. Good, praise the Lord, read the passage. If you think it's going to be other than that, you're headed for a rude awakening. That's why you should respect and appreciate every preacher that's here. And even though he might be off a half a bubble here and there, he is experiencing things you have no concept, no idea about the price he's paying besides the devil after him. All of these things are coming on. You say, why? The Lord's putting that thorn in there. And he said, Lord, could you take it? In that next passage, you know what happens? Paul said, I knew a man in the body, out of the body, I cannot tell. I, the Lord knoweth and caught up to the third heaven and behold most wonderful things and all that stuff. And then he said he came, comes down through that passage in 2 Corinthians 12 there. And he said, uh, the Lord gave me a, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to birth me, of whom I thought the, besought the Lord three times, thrice, and said, Lord, take it away. You know what the Lord said? I'm going to answer your prayer, Paul. You say he took the thorn away. No, he left the thorn in him. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, because when you're weak and I'm strong, and if I don't give you the thorn, you're going to be bragging about where you were instead of what I want you to do. And so you know what Paul's life is? Paul's life is ministering to people through his own suffering and his own pain. You sure you want to be a Christian? You sure you want to be a preacher? You sure that's what you want to do? You say, what is it? Paul doesn't even have a donkey to ride home on. Looks like he's got a coat and some parchments when he gets his head cut off. You know what his final thing was? His final stay before he got his head cut off? I'm now ready to be offered. You say, where was he? He was laid up at the Ritz-Carlton. You know, he was having him a good time. Had room service every day. Went to the spa twice a day after he got through with his tennis match and stuff like that. Went by the masseuse. They gave him a little rub down and things like that. And, and they brought him in caviar and steaks and dinner and stuff like that. And, I mean, that's, that's how he was treated, right? No, that's how they treat Benny Hinn. That's how they treat Joel Osteen. That's not how they treat a preacher. A preacher is an off-scouring the world. You're not appreciated by the world at all. That's why you Christians ought to appreciate your preachers more. I don't have my congregation here. They love me and take care of me. I'm not preaching it as a self-serving thing. I'm saying your preacher is paying a price that you have no idea the cost it cost him to be there, let alone the price of his wife and his family. Well, I don't like him and all that kind of stuff. Well, walk a mile in his moccasins, as the Indians say, and then see whether or not you might have, whether you like him or not, you might respect him. I respect every one of these guys here. You say, why? Because it takes a lot of chutzpah. It takes a lot of uh, uh, backbone for them to be able to do what they're doing and to stay in it more than a year. The fact that they're still in here, they got something you ain't got yet. They've had to reach down and grab it and growl more than once. They got some grit in their crawl. It's suffering. That's what God uses. Uh, you were to look at a rabbit one day. You may go out there on the rabbit trail, and you see on the rabbit trail, you see a bloody paw print running down through the snow like that. And that would be old Talmadge's way of describing the ministry. He said, that's how the ministry is. There's blood everywhere you step. That's the ministry. Take your Bible and come a, a little bit further over, if you would please, to Philippians chapter number 3. <coughs> Philippians 3. Here's you a couple of things I wrote down about suffering. I don't know for sure where I got all of these things. Probably most of them from the old preacher. 
But he said, uh, here's the reason for suffering. Number one, suffering will make you humble. There is nothing that will knock the strut out of your step faster than suffering. I mean, you can feel like you're doing really good and get you about 104 temperature and get you a headache that won't quit and get Montezuma's revenge. And the next thing you know, boy, you'd be surprised how quick that head will come down and how that back will stoop over. And before long, you know what happens? You'll be humble. That Bible said, pride cometh before a fall and, uh, and haughtiness before destruction. Pride cometh before destruction uh, and haughtiness, I guess it is, before uh, destruction, something like that. Pride before a fall, haughtiness before destruction, it won't come to my mind. At any rate, pride's the one that'll wear you out. What is humility? Sometimes the Lord sends, sends a thorn your way. You say, what? To bring you down. Number two, it makes you fruitful according to what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter number one. It makes you able to, to bear some fruit. The Lord has to go through a pruning process. It causes you to have an ability to sympathize and empathize with other people. I remember a whole lot of years ago when I preached some things and I told you last night, ashamedly so, that I preached some things and I was pretty hard and pretty rough and pretty mean. I, I didn't know another way. My heart was right. I didn't intend to hurt people, but I hurt people. And uh, I was mean-spirited, and I did it the wrong kind of way. And then some things occurred in my life, one of the first of which is, is when my dad died, if you were to be listening uh, the week before my dad died and listen to me about three weeks after my dad died, you'll hear a definite change in what happened. See, I'd been around death a whole bunch, a bunch, way too much, too many things to even mention. Been through a whole bunch of death. It was really nothing to me. Didn't even hardly have any tears about stuff like that anymore. Didn't matter to me anymore. But something happened in my life. My dad, younger than I am, he's only 64 years of age, he died clean. Didn't do anything wrong, serving the Lord, loved the Lord, believed the book, married to my mama. She's still by herself and stuff. She's 92 years old now, uh, getting all crippled up and stuff, but still in her right mind. But when that happened in my life right there, it changed. It caused me to learn to empathize and sympathize with people. Sometimes the Lord has to send suffering along to knock the edge off, to temper the steel a little bit. Suffering's good for you. You know what suffering will do? Suffering will try your dedication. It'll try your consecration. It'll see whether or not you're in it as what I call a fair-weather Christian. I wish I had a nickel for everybody. No, I don't. I wouldn't take any money for them at all. For every Christian that when things didn't go their way, they just quit. They just turn their nose up. I'm just done. I'm just done. I'm done. I can't believe God's doing this to me. Why'd you do this, God? Why'd you do that, God? Why'd you do this? Because he's God. Because he can. How about that? How about, why don't you suck it up, buttercup? How about that? I mean, everybody has bad things happen to them, and everybody has heartbreak, and everything has, everybody has trouble that happens in their life. But the first thing that will happen, it'll, it'll, it'll get that dedication going. Are you really dedicated to the Lord? Is that only when the sun's shining? How about it when it's raining? How about when the snow's flying? I'm in Alaska a few weeks ago, and we get up there, and they take me way up on the top of a mountain up there to the Denali thing, some park up there. It's absolutely unbelievably beautiful. But they didn't take me up there to see all the sights. They pull off over to this little place over here and said, this is where we stop in the wintertime. And I said, what do you mean in the wintertime? He said, well, from here, it's a six-hour trip on snowmobile, and we drive down here to this little village. You can't get to it when the ice breaks because the ice will crush your boat. And he said, you can't get there right now because of the way the river is. You can get there by river. Uh, during this particular time but you only got about a month but after the thaw you can't go so we wait till winter time when everything's frozen and we get on snowmobiles and we pack as much stuff as we can and we drive six hours back into the snow and all that stuff freezing cold 20 degrees below zero to go minister to some people out in the bush in Alaska boy that ain't a fair weather Christian 
You say, well, that sounds like the Alaska and Willis. Six hours on a snowmobile? Man, it drives me insane just to hear trail bikes, you know, sounds like a chainsaw looking for grandma or something, man. It just drives me crazy. Six hours to do what? To go minister to a few people that they got to pump sunshine in there so far back there. Well, is that the kind of Christian you want to be? I'm, I'm only long as I get the girl I want, long as I get the guy I want, long as I got gas in my car, long as I got heat and air conditioning, long as I got food in my belly, long as I can go to church when I want to go to church and do what I want to do and live how I want to live, watch what I want to watch, listen to what I want to listen to, say what I want to say, dress how I want to dress, don't tell me what to do. You know what suffering will do for you? It'll put you to the test. Nothing tests you more than suffering. Nothing. Nothing in the world tests you more than suffering. Cause you to sympathize with others. It proves God's sufficiency to take care of you in issues you can't take care of yourself. And last of all, the thing that he put on here, you know what he does? It makes heaven real to you. It makes you long for being in heaven. Are you in Philippians chapter 3? Look in Philippians 3. Now, I, I, I realize I, I'm probably sounding a little bit harder on you. But it's time that you grow up. You're old enough now to do it. Kids grow up fast nowadays because of that television and internet and stuff. There's stuff you've been exposed to. I didn't get exposed to until I was nearly out of high school. You're seeing and doing stuff. We never saw that stuff. I'm grateful for it. My mom and daddy didn't let that stuff in the household. <laughs> of course, in the household back in the day I was growing up, you had rabbit ears with foil on the end of them, and there was three channels. And they went off at 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> The airplanes fly over and they sing the Star Spangled Banner and then the flag waves and that kind of thing right before it goes to snow. There'd be a guy come on there and say, it's 11 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? That's what I was raised in. He said, man, what a drag, what a drag. No, man, if I, the only only time I saw 11 o'clock, on Friday night. That's the only time I ever saw 11 o'clock. You say, why? We were in bed, man. Are you kidding me? My parents let me, I didn't get to stay up past 11 o'clock until I was a senior in high school. Boy, you got it tough, don't you? <laughs> you got it rough. Why, you don't even, when you go to bed, you don't even go to bed. You go to bed with a phone next to you. I, one of the most the hilarious things I have ever read in a newspaper was that a little girl went to bed at nighttime and she put her phone underneath her uh, pillow and during the night, her phone, the battery went bad and the phone got hot and it caught her pillow on fire. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> Let's teach you to go to bed with your phone, man. I mean, you say, well, what happened to her? Well, she didn't get burnt too bad, but, but she, I bet she don't sleep with it under her pillow anymore. I mean... Mama, 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 my hair's on fire. You know, looks like Gaddafi over there when they bombed the That's hilarious. Oh, what if that happened to you? Where would your phone be in the middle of the night? Right there on the dresser so you can keep up with whoever posted you at 2 o'clock in the morning. Can I tell you who's out at 2 o'clock in the morning? Rats and roaches and ne'er-do-wells. Why are you even talking to somebody that's up that late at night? Especially at your age. Well, he's my boyfriend. If he's catting around at 2 o'clock in the morning at this age, what do you think he's going to do after he gets married to you, young lady? What's he supposed to be doing? He's supposed to be working so hard that he goes to sleep at night. 
maybe I got to go to sleep. Why? I got to go to work tomorrow. Philippians chapter number 3, look in verse number 10, talking about suffering. The Bible says this, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his what? Suffering is a part of what we wind up doing. Look in uh, Hebrews chapter number 2. Hebrews chapter number 2. If I only get through this portion of it, it's just important. You say, how do you get the rewards of the judgment seat of Christ? I'll show you a minute in Romans 8 and in 2 Timothy 2 where you get the rewards is from suffering. Your salvation is a sure thing. The way you obtain rewards in eternity. Aren't we talking about treasure? Where's Brother Joe? Brother Joe, aren't we talking about treasure? Is that right? Treasure, eternal rewards, right? Gold, silver, precious stones. Isn't it odd? You know what he gives you treasure for? You say, what I do for the Lord. Yeah, but those two passages I'm going to show you have to do with suffering. Are you willing to take one for the team when it comes to the Lord? Can you stand out on a street corner? You don't have to yell and scream at people. Can you hold a scripture sign? Can you just tell them about the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses from all sin? If you've never street preached before, can I give you an idea to, to start it? Learn you a good verse. How about this one? Jesus wept. You say, what's that or that? Can't you preach off of that? Jesus wept. He wept over me. He didn't want to see me go to hell. He's weeping over you. He'd like to see you go to heaven. Wouldn't you like to trust Jesus Christ? You say, well, I don't know if that's theological. Don't get hung up on it. Why don't you try it? Jesus wept. Just try it. You'd be surprised how much power there is in that. Get up there and say, listen, man, I was on my way to hell. I was a bad person and I was a sinner. I was going to hell because of my sins. And Jesus Christ stepped in to save me. That's my testimony. Wouldn't you like to then they drive off again, give you some pressed hand, wave at you funny. They've got some of their, some of their fingers amputated and stuff. And they wave at you in a weird kind of a way and stuff like that. You say, what are you doing? You're suffering affliction. Not for being arrogant or stupid or screaming out them some kind of crazy stuff to make them want to fight. You know, you bare-legged, cigarette-sucking bunch of... You know, you're going to, hey, I'm not talking about that. You don't live in the 1950s. You know what you do? You say, hey, Jesus Christ died for you because you're sinners. They know what a sinner is. All they got to do is look up in the rearview mirror and go, yeah, there's one right there. <laughs> He's following me everywhere I go. That's all they'd have to do. Try it. Really, you don't have to, you don't have to get this idea that I got to be the guy that's, that's you know, uh, stand like Sam Jones out there and beat somebody to a pulp and then ask them to trust Jesus Christ. You don't have to do that. Just take a stand. Having done all to stand, stand. Hebrews, if you're there, chapter number 2. Look, if you will, please, in verse number 10. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, bringing many sons into glory to make them captive of their salvation, perfect through... Do you see it? I thought the Lord was already perfect. There's some things he had to learn, Right? The fellowship of his sufferings. Coming up to the first Peter 2. I'll show you a wild one. This is wild to me. First Peter chapter number 2. This is the Lord asking me to do something he didn't do. Well, hold on a minute. Let's just see what it is. It's not always getting beat down. Sometimes it's just standing for what's right to do. It's called conviction. Do you have convictions about anything? I'm for you to defend in your position. If, at least if you have enough grit to stand for it. I, I look at some of you. I know why you do the odd things that you do. But I, I admire you because at least you got some conviction about it. You got enough character to stand for it. You stand out like a sore thumb, but at least you got the character to do it. Boy, if you could turn that and give that kind of support for Jesus Christ, you might amount to something. I'll take the ones that are in misfits and try to do something with them. You say, why? Because if you can ever spin that person around with that kind of conviction, they already don't care what you think. You get them to fall in love with Jesus Christ, man, you talk about a bull in a china closet, man. Yeah. 
I mean, those kind of guys, are, they're good to have once you get them. If you get them, boy, you got an Abishai. Look, if you will, please, in 1 Peter chapter number 2. I think this is kind of wild to me. He talks about verse 18, Servants be subject to your own masters and fear not only the good and gentle, but also the froward. And then he says this, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief and suffering, look at that, wrongfully. He said it's thankworthy. Because my conscience toward God said I'm being falsely accused and I'm being made fun of and I'm being mocked and I'm being belittled. And the Lord said, but if you endure that because you suffered wrongfully, it's, he's the one thanking you for it. How about that? Watch. For what glory is it when you be buffeted for your faults? You shall take it patiently. You did something wrong and you get in trouble. Then the Lord's like, well, you deserve to get the tar knocked out of you. But when you do well, and what? Do you see it in the passage? And suffer for it. You take it patiently. This is acceptable with who? God likes that. God likes when you do right and you get hammered for it. That ought to make you feel good. He's almost implying that when you do right, you're going to get hammered for it. Now let's just see if there's an example of it in the Bible. I like this, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called. What? Yeah, the Lord said, this is what I called you to do. I called you to do right and expect to get what? Rewards. No, hammered. You say, what are we talking about? See this? You're trying to be conformed to his image, right? You have to allow that. You can't expect to be anything but that. Do you ever get disappointed with people because you do something? And I'm not talking about Mary because he misses your birthday or anniversary or something like that. He does that because he don't know no better. He's a fool. But let me say this to you. Have you ever done something for the Lord and you thought that maybe people would appreciate it and they didn't appreciate it at all? They didn't even say thank you. I bet you every one of these preachers in here, I bet you every single one of them, I bet you they've preached their guts out on more than one occasion and they've gone sometimes weeks if not months without a single person coming by and saying, boy, I sure appreciate that preacher. That helped me. When's the last time you told your pastor, preacher, I appreciate that. That was good this morning. When's the last time you told your Sunday school teacher that? Been a while, you just kind of take it for granted, right? But then when it happens to you, don't you get poochy lip? Well, you know, I brought cupcakes to the fellowship. Nobody even said anything about it. Well, did you do it for the right reason? Well, if you did, then you brought it and you don't care if anybody did not. The Lord said, appreciate the cupcakes. Watch what he says, for even here unto where you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us, oh well, how about that? An example that you should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Now, can I just pause there for three shakes of a sheep's tail, and then we're going to move to 2 Timothy chapter number 2. But let me just say this to you. Can I say that the Lord suffered more than we could ever suffer? You know what he said? I commit myself to the Father, and I'm going to let him take care of it, and I'm not expecting to get anything other than that from sinners. Why is it that we have the expectation that we should be treated differently? Do you ever pause to think that I'm, the Lord's doing a good work on me? Remember that uh, little boy that came, the old preacher used to tell the illustration about he came down to the altar and he was down there for a long time and finally the old preacher got down there and got next to him and he's listening to the little boy pray and the little boy is praying. He's saying to the Lord, Lord, do a good job on me. Do a good job on me. Lord, do a good job on me. I like the song you used to sing as a little kid. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him however long to make moon and stars, Jupiter and Mars, but he's still working on me. He'll work on you to the day they have RIP written over your tombstone. 
You say, why? We're a work in progress. It doesn't happen overnight. Remember, you don't want to get ahead of the cheating. don't want to get ahead of the support. don't want to get so far out there you wind up getting crushed. Look at this thing in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Brother Joe, I'm aware of the time. Give me about three or four minutes and we'll be good to go. 2 Timothy chapter number 2. Look at verse number 11. It is a faithful saying, for we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. That's your salvation. Your preachers can explain all this stuff to you later on. That has to do with your standing. Now watch. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Well, now wait a minute. I'm confused. If I'm saved, then I'm eternally secure. So he's going to deny me entrance to heaven? No, not at all. You're going to heaven no matter that. You're saved, you're sealed to the day of redemption. But you know what he said? If you want to reign, you have to suffer. And if you deny that suffering, you know what happens? He denies you the right to rule and reign. Not the right to go to heaven. Come to Romans chapter number 8. You say, why? I'm trying to make sense of suffering. I can't tell you how much pain and agony and difficulty and problems I've seen over time. And it's a terrible thing. And I wouldn't dare try my best to not even uh, impose or think about what might be going on in your life or what you might have been through. I know that all things do work together for good. I know that. To them that love God, them that are called according to His purpose. I know that. But I know that there's no explanation for it unless you look at the Bible and the Lord says, Hey, I'm looking down the line at the eternal picture. I'm not looking at the here and now right now. Let me give you one more here. It's getting kind of warm in here anyway, so y'all are ready to take a break. Romans chapter number 8. Look, if you will, please, in verse number, uh, oh, make it 15. Well, let's go to 14. If you're led of the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. You have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. I don't have to worry about going to hell. But you receive the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself, this is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There's your salvation again. You are, that's sure, that's eternal security. And if children, then heirs of God. There's your salvation. I'm an heir of God. And join heirs with Christ. Uh-oh, there's a stipulation. I'm a joint heir with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. For I reckon that sufferings, the sufferings, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Where does the glory get revealed? When he comes back to get his uh, right to rule and reign, if you've suffered with him for the cause of Christ, you get the right to rule and reign with him. So it's cross now and crown later. You say, why didn't you tell me that an hour ago? Because I like to tell you the story. You have to realize that part of the Christian life, part of the way that he shapes us, part of the way he molds us, part of the way he makes us what he would have us to be, he uses suffering, but you have to allow it. You can either buck up against it, fight against it, push against it, or you can succumb to it and submit to it. You can either get mad about it and get bitter about it and get angry about it and fuss with God about it, or you can say, you know something, I don't know why I'm getting this, I don't know why I'm getting hammered, I don't know why I'm getting the tar knocked out of me, but God must see something in me that needs to be worked out of me, and he's seen fit to give me the gift, the gift, the privilege, the benefit of suffering, and of all the things he could give me, the greatest gift he could give me is suffering. Father, I pray you bless your word and pray that you might help us tonight as we, or help us today as we go about our activities. Pray you'll keep the young and safe and pray you'll bless the folks and the staff that's prepared things for us in the kitchen. I pray, Lord, that what's been said today, maybe at least a portion of them, help them to better understand that the suffering for a Christian is a, a good thing and that we ought to embrace those things. I pray now that you'll help us as we continue through the day. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.